0: Welcome to the second season of the PEBC Podcast. My name is Michelle Morris-Jones, and I will be hosting our series on phenomenal teaching. In season two, we will take a deeper dive into how the strands of the PEBC teaching framework, planning, community, workshop, thinking strategies, discourse, and assessment, cultivate student agency, equity, and understanding for each and every student. I am honored to share these conversations with authors, classroom teachers, education leaders, and staff developers with you. Today's episode is sponsored by Pinnacle Assurance, Colorado's trusted workers' compensation provider. Thank you so much for listening in. Naval Karuni-Cassiano is an educator, literacy consultant, and writer based out of Chicago. Forever passionate about growing readers, writers, and thinkers, Naval worked as a classroom teacher, literacy coach, and curriculum developer in Brooklyn and Chicago before launching NQC Literacy in 2014. She and her team support schools and districts by facilitating professional development and coaching around a holistic, balanced approach to literacy instruction. Always looking through the lens of cultural sustainability, inclusion, and equity. She is the proud daughter of immigrants, and her role as a mother to four multi-ethnic, multilingual kids shapes her approach as an educator. Naval, welcome to the Phenomenal Teaching Podcast. On the podcast, we strive to answer the question, how do we teach for agency, equity, and understanding? And it is so exciting to have this opportunity to talk with you about all the ways in which we can intentionally cultivate community and plan for cultural sustainability.
1: Thank you so much for having me today. This is such a pleasure.
0: So Naval, you have a rich professional history. You are a journalist, you're a classroom teacher, an instructional coach, you've worked in districts. I know that you have this love of language and reading and writing are passionate areas for you. So let's just start off this morning by talking about the intersection. How has all of that come together for you to where you are today?
1: That's such an awesome question. I would be remiss if I didn't say that I come from a long history of storytellers, that in Iran, um, we tell stories, oral language is incredibly important. And my parents spoke Farsi to me and spoke Arabic to me and read aloud uh, all kinds of fairy tales and made up stories that came from our background. And so I think my first um, language acquisition came from oral storytelling and memories. That being said, as a journalist, which was amazing as um, a reporter, and I was a beat reporter in Newark, New Jersey, um, the best part is that you get to know people and that you get to tell their stories. And that's not too dissimilar um, to teaching in that you get to know people and that kids come first and humanity is centered in what we do.
0: I love it. And it's just, it's so exciting to hear, you know, backgrounds and how educators come together into into the classroom and just thinking about, you know, just what you just said about, you know, centering humanity and really getting to know people, that's so much of what teaching is about, at least high quality teaching. And, you know, at the PEBC, we are so passionate about ensuring that the dispositions the environment, our relationships with students are really steeped in equitable practices and really going beyond just recognizing student diversity or engaging, engaging in more performative practices. So I'm really curious to hear, like, from your perspective and your experiences working in so many schools, how might we teach literacy for agency equity and understanding? What needs to be in place so that we can really heighten that humanity?
1: Yeah, that's a huge question. Um, And all of our work, right? That is the work. But I'm glad that you bring it up because um, we don't want Band-Aid solutions, right? No. Um, And often, you know, we tend to go to a diverse book list. We Google it and, you know, potentially swap out a couple of mentor texts for our reading or for our writing workshops. Um, But it it goes deeper than that. Um, Thinking about all the ways that we can include family and honoring the kind of rich histories that they bring, that all cultures bring, like what cultural capital um, are our students bringing is is kind of at the top of mind when we mm-hmm. think about designing curriculum.
0: Absolutely, so when we think about that cultural capital, like you said, and just going beyond, like adding a couple books to the library or celebrating a particular day, mm-hmm. let's talk a little bit about instruction. How can we, how can we refine our processes for teaching reading and writing? Yeah, what are some of your I'm suggestions, or how do we step out of the box?
1: Yeah, I'm glad that you bring that up. I always go to choice. Um, I think that with choice, students build confidence and and feel that they are owners of their own learning journeys. And as adults outside the classroom, we get to make decisions about how we share our learning and. A, like what artifacts we want to keep, and so why don't we why don't we design curriculum that way so that kids can a choose how they want to share the artifacts of their, for example, reading. Um, it could look like a podcast. It could look like a oral recorded response. It could look like. Um, images with captions? Why can't that be the way that we do reading responses um, at times, right? So I right. think about all the aspects that we can provide additional choice for kids because that brings access and that brings
0: agency and choice. So when you're thinking about choice on output, like how might kids respond to text? Like you just really provided some ideas that are a little bit, like you said, out of the box, Um, you know, thinking about all the ways that kids can really demonstrate their understanding. One thing it made me think about though, is that idea of, of choice in terms of text. So when we think about text and we think about the classroom, how do you define text?
1: I'm so glad that you asked that too, all the questions, Michelle. Text for me is a really broad and expansive kind of definition. Um, Text can be lyrics. Text can be a piece of art that you ask questions about um, and cultivate criticality around. Text can be the way that we read each other's facial expressions. Uh, Text can be video. If we consider all of those to be text and we give kids choice for how to apply the critical thinking skills and question skills, then what we're doing is building Criticality muscles, right? It all does the same work in the brain. And then it builds confidence for when kids are engaged with alphabetic
0: text. Hmm. So, the term criticality, you hear it a lot, we see it a lot. You know, anyone who's following streams on Twitter or, you know, any of their social media feeds and just reading different journals, that term Hmm. is very, very prevalent right now. And I think a lot of educators are grappling with the definition. What does that really mean? And so from your perspective, when you think about criticality, you think about this idea around choice and output, choice and input, broadening our definition of the ways in which kids can respond to text or even the kinds of text that they can consume. How does that relate to criticality? And for you, what does criticality actually mean?
1: For me, criticality, I always think of kind of like a detective lens. What lenses are we offering for kids to put on text so that they don't just consume without asking any questions. Mm. If we offer for kids all the different ways that they can be curious, criticality to me equals curiosity. We're trying to breed critical thinking skills so that we don't, um, so that we don't get fill in the box kids waiting for us to tell us what to do, tell them what to do. Right? Right. And I think when I, when I, um, when I broaden those definitions in the classroom, it, it goes towards everything, including writing process, right? including the way that kids compose. Some kids, for example, multilingual kids, find it much easier to record themselves and orally rehearse what they want to write on paper, whereas some kids need to get it down on paper first. Mm-hmm. And so ensuring that kids have that option, because as a multilingual writer myself, I know that when I record my voice, I can find where I had intended it to sound differently. If I can hear myself saying it aloud, and then I get it down on paper and I revise it. And so I offer that as an option for our kids like all across Chicago who are bilingual and may wanna record themselves first in English or in a different language, right? And mm-hmm. include that trans um, not just saying you can use Spanish, but saying, please use Spanish also. Yes, it All the way through so that we're really like exalting all the full repertoire of what they what they bring to the table in terms of literacy. And so I think criticality means just that is turning the lens on the text that you consume so that you can ask questions about it so that you can make connections to it and making sure that we have
0: a wide array of ways that we can respond and express and output. Wow. I mean, I just love the way that you're painting this picture of a classroom. And you think about what child would not want to be learning in that environment and what child wouldn't be really like flourishing, right? When you think about opportunities, so many opportunities for choice, but then also intentional support mm-hmm. to ensure, I like I love what you said about we don't want kids who are just going to fill in the boxes. Mm-hmm. That's not the purpose. That's not the point. We really want to foster understanding. You really are providing us with some information around, you know, that idea of criticality but then also what it looks like and sounds like in a classroom i know you have a lot of projects going on you are an incredibly busy person incredibly creative you yourself have quite a bit of output so let's go kind of into some kind of talking about some of your work and also work in the classroom so what are you you know you just mentioned helping students with output in terms of being able to record themselves and then being able to take that into that writing sphere. But what other projects are you really excited about right now? What's giving you energy?
1: i That's a lot of fun. Um, one of my most fun passion projects is a partnership that I'm doing with Cornelius Minor um, with the We Need Diverse Books Foundation. and. If you don't know of We Need Diverse Books, you should. It's an incredible organization with far reach um, that basically just exalts and offers a platform for opening diverse texts, uh, expanding into all kind of walks of life. And I say that because it's not just um, they, they do it with far reaching tentacles, we need diverse books. So one of the projects that I'm working on is we have a six part series where we are exalting um, uh, a diverse author and a new text that they're coming up with um, that they recently are putting out and so we interview them and we have a student-facing video component and we also have a feature article on them and the idea is with We Need Diverse Books they offer scholarships to kids, they offer scholarships to um, underrepresented uh, unpublished authors with pathways for success. There's a new partnership coming out right now called Lit Up uh, with with Reese Witherspoon's book club. And those types of partnerships really platform um, people of color for success in these arenas where they have been marginalized and there have been gatekeepers. And so that's what I love about the partnership is that as educators, mm. ensuring that students mm. have interactions mm. with their with the creators mm. of the text that we're hoping to put in their hands
0: um, just has like wide-reaching effects. It's incredible. Like I was just thinking about the 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 entire organization, but then also your work with Cornelius, like just this idea when you mentioned exalting authors whose voices have maybe not been heard before or recognized and hearing those stories and the process and about the lives of the people who are writing these books. I'd love to hear a little bit more about like, what are you discovering in that process when you are you know interviewing um, authors who have been underrepresented or their cultures have been underrepresented? What are you learning? What are some common experiences across those authors? Or what are you finding that would be inspirational for kids? So here's the cool thing. Almost all of them have said in our interviews
1: that they felt in the classroom that they could never be published authors. So look at what we are potentially providing for kids to see themselves in texts, number one, like Dr. Rudine Sims Bishop's windows or mirrors. You can see yourselves in text mirrors, or you can see a world, a new culture and learn from that. But also they see themselves as the potential to be a creator. Absolutely. Published creator. And so that's been really incredible. Um, Jasmine Warga's new book is called The Shape of Thunder. It's coming out uh, around the start of May. And she is, is incredible. But her books, she specifically talks about um, the way that we are teaching story arc in classrooms, not being representative of world story arc. And not wow. being representative of the way that, you know, it doesn't have to fit into this very clear, somebody wanted but so resolution or problem solution, you know, problem conflict solution. <laughs> and how that type of form really inhibited her early abilities to want to write. And she wrote the, the poetic novel and verse, Other Words for Home, award winning, it's gotten a ton of acclaim. She said that she never felt like a poetry person growing up. Mm-hmm. She poetry. Poetry was where, um, you know, kind of her thoughts went to die because it was forced into form. And so when she was able to kind of think off the page and have an unconventional writing process, then she saw herself more potentially as a writer and she's an Arab American. So, you know, I, I take that to heart as an educator.
0: Absolutely. You know, we just talked about the impact on kids and hearing these interviews, and and like you said, having some thought leaders. But I'm just thinking about my own writer's workshop when I was still in the classroom, and I'm thinking about all of the the teachers that I support with writing, and how interesting it would be to read these articles and listen to these interviews, to really think about what are authentic writing processes? Mm -hmm. How do real writers approach their craft? Mm -hmm. And then how can we provide options for students either in a you know a writing context or in a you know especially in secondary grades there's a lot of writing that happens throughout the day and there isn't just one way to do it
1: no i know it feels more comfortable to have a specific format or a specific kind of output that feels very comforting well what are they supposed to do teachers often say to me thank you so much for giving like you freed me right and i said like I'm I'm not freeing you you guys, I I am right but there's I think that there's a real fear that we can't kind of open up and because what is it supposed to look like there's no supposed to
0: right and it's that just that broad definition of text again is coming into play in communication for all readers and all writers there isn't just one Way to do it. There isn't just one piece to pick up and read. Um, one of my dear colleagues, uh, Dr. Stevie Quate, always says when she's working with writing. She works with the Colorado Writing Project. She always says, "If you can't buy it in Barnes and Noble, there's probably no reason to write it." <laughs> right? Like, like that's kind of her litmus test. Like, if this yeah. isn't something you can, and you know, it doesn't have to be at Barnes and Noble, but you know, it has to be in the real world. Like, if you can't find it out there, why are we asking kids to write it? I'm because, glad that, you
1: brought that up. I'm glad that you brought that up, really, because that's kind of my test as well. How are we teaching kids to be literate thinkers outside of classroom walls? Is this something that we would do in real life? Is this something that we would ask of an adult? Is this something that we would demand or request or wish of an adult? If, if the answer is no, then that, that task, that assignment, that kind of <laughs> should not be present in my opinion.
0: Absolutely. And when we think about engagement, we think about how engaging it is to engage in authentic tasks. And we think about, you know, when we talked about earlier, agency, equity, and understanding. Like you said, if we don't want kids just to be filling in the boxes, we've got to give them real stuff to do and real stuff to read and opportunities to experiment with craft. And if you don't mind, I'd love to switch kind of from talking about writing and kind of circle back to text. Well, I know that you are a lover of children's literature, that you can cons- and YA and adult. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you are a reader. Yeah. And I know that um, earlier in our conversation, we mentioned, you know, you just can't pick up a couple books off a diverse book list and put them in your classroom library. Um, That we can do better than that. Mm -hmm. And I know that you have been working on um, kind of a nourishing book list project. I'd love to hear a little bit about your thinking about that. And then maybe we can talk a little bit about some steps that teacher librarians and classroom teachers and administrators might take if they want to really enrich their own collections. But let's start with nourishing books. What's going on with that?
1: I I am just a firm believer that food solves problems. (laughs) (laughs) I'm with you there. Yes. And that, um, I don't know, in my family, I, I do believe that an intricately crafted meal is the way that we show love. Um, and I think that that's true in a lot of cultures and a lot of picture books that are out right now, um, kind of speak to that. And there's a lot around identity and culture, um, and especially for people like me who live hyphenated identities uh there's like embarrassment of our meals potentially from our backgrounds and our you know growing up going to a mostly white school and why are you eating that stew and right there's a lot of that kind of um kind of perception that I'd like to come back and move move into just love 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 of the of the amazing meals that that are part of us and our identities. And so there's a really amazing kind of array of current picture books right now about ways that we can nourish ourselves and sustain ourselves. Uh, it's like Multicultural Lit, for example, Fry Bread. Um, there's Aimewoo and the Very Special bow. There, um, there are just so many watercress recently came out that's really beautiful. There are just so many. Um, and so I'm putting together a list and hope that teachers will use them in their classrooms to ask kids about their own uh, nourishing traditions and their own rituals at home around food. Um, and I think that that could be a really
0: engaging springboard. We're doing it. Uh, we're
1: doing it in a lot of our you know, a lot of our Chicago schools, so it's
0: a lot of fun. That is a lot of fun. And what's interesting, I think, also is just the way in which you incorporated a passion of yours. You know, we think about that. You know, Ellen Keane talks all the time about your instructional fingerprint. And how every teacher has their own individual thumbprint. Mm-hmm. and how, and and by that meaning, that we need to bring ourselves to our classrooms, that in order to cultivate the rich relationships with kids, they need to know us, of course, professionally. But when you think about you know the nourishing books and you, and the way that you describe the intricacy of a meal and how that really reflects your beliefs around family and love, mm-hmm. but then to transform that into something that can be used in classrooms. And that's so universal, I think is also really freeing for teachers to think about, well, what's your passion area? What do you love? And then how can you represent a variety of cultures through that lens? That seems really energizing to me.
1: Yeah, that's, that's completely true. I love that. I think that the other side of that coin is vulnerability and bringing Mm -hmm. vulnerability yourself into the classroom in that way. Like you don't need to know every single answer or every single culture or every single, right? Like we learn alongside our students. We are not the sage on the stage anymore. Um, I think that that's really important. And so there is a little vulnerability in sharing personal stories and those anecdotes from our childhoods where we were potentially embarrassed or where we didn't, we weren't at that time the, you know, the teacher, right? Like what did our Kind of history look like? I think that's
0: that's really awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just so. I think that takes us to our next question, which I'm really curious about. You know, this idea around diversifying collections and really thinking about okay, so if I am a teacher librarian or a classroom teacher or a school leader, and kind of look around the school or look around the classroom, and I realize we might not have as many mirrors as we need to. Or as many windows. What are some steps that um, teachers, school leaders, teacher librarians can take to diversify their collections? That, like you said, are not just picking off books off a diverse book list. Like, what's the thinking behind that? And how can we do it in really smart ways?
1: Yeah, I, I appreciate this because. Um, Sometimes I think that we talk in an echo chamber and we say the same things over and over again, but let's say them so that everybody can hear it. I think it's so important to be very careful that every marginalized group, every group that is not white is not a monolith, right? Just like whites are not a monolith. And so if you have one text that you believe is representing a group, that won't be enough. We need to read and expose kids wide and deep to each group so that they understand over the course of their educational careers, kind of just all the nuance and beautiful texture that every group brings. And so, yeah, time is a, an issue. What that means is that your cornerstone texts, the canon potentially should change. And so the Disrupt Text Movement uh, is one place that I would go um, to, to their website and to see some potential swaps so that we're not teaching the same Eurocentric texts over and over again. Um, but I think a lot of just about choice in independent in independent classroom library time. And so the publisher that I always go to is Lee and Lowe, because I trust their texts to be own voices texts, which means um, the person who's writing the story is of that background. And when we don't have own voices texts, what happens is that a white person is writing about another culture. And so that's when we potentially fall into harmful tropes and harmful kind of narratives that are steeped in, in smallness or, you know, that, that language steeped in smallness is Dr. Goldie Mohammed's, right, where we are um, just potentially falling into harmful narratives and stereotypes. And so we want to make sure that every book that we are touting and offering to kids when we're diversifying our libraries is written by a person of that culture and that background experience. Um, those are kind of my first choices, so I go to Lee and Low Disrupt text is an amazing group for beautiful think minds who have put together potential alternative texts, and there are lots of educators' guides with all these books. Dr. Sonia Cherry Paul um, just came out with the adaptation to Stamped, which is incredible um and I think should be taught in every school. She recently wrote a piece for Chalkbeat, which we'll put in the show notes, I hope, about ensuring that Black joy um, is on the page, right? So the, the stories that we're teaching of Blacks should not solely be about slavery or about resistance and strife, but about what Lindsay Brickens calls incidental race. So just being regular and also black or brown, right? And so I think that those are kind of my main considerations when I'm thinking about texts.
0: Thank you so much. I just really appreciate the way in which you are very clear, very honest, and also I think provided another perspective. Um, you know, for a long time, teachers maybe have had some control of classroom libraries and collections, and or maybe less control, maybe more control, but the critical questions and topics that you just posed could be a great litmus test. Mm. I like, okay, wait a minute. Who wrote this particular piece? Yeah. What's being represented? And how does that how does that truly affect or impact my students? Yeah. What understanding will they get from this? And I, I just love what you just shared about the types of text that kids are reading about particular groups. So easy to fall into stereotypes and I just want you to keep talking. Like, what else, what else, one more thing. What else do we need to hear about this tech selection business?
1: I don't know. I would just say, um, you know, I think right now my schools are really rushing to potentially use funds, right? They want to like use funds that are out there. And so the best way, in my opinion, to use funds is to build out classroom libraries in really thoughtful ways so that kids have a ton of choice so that kids have there are audio adaptations to so many of these gorgeous books. Project Litcom is also one of my go-to resources for making sure that these, you know, these beautiful, diverse texts are on my students' radar. And so making sure that kids have a chance to put these in their hands during independent independent reading time, but also those could be your cornerstone canon, right? Those could be the texts.
0: So that's Absolutely. what I'm saying. so one last question as we wrap up today. What are you looking forward to?
1: <laughs> um, other than all four of my children going to school again.
0: Um, <laughs> yes, there you go. <laughs>
1: um, I am hoping that amid the, amid all the challenge that we've all been facing, um, we hold on to what we realized was wonderful or is wonderful about teaching and most important about teaching and throw out everything that hasn't been working. Mm. I hope that we don't go back to the way it was because the way it was, was not working for all of our students. And so I I really want, I really want, I'm, I'm using a framework, start, stop and keep with my, with my teams. What do we want to start that we've seen that is, is really great right now. What do we want to stop doing that has not been useful? And what do we want to keep like hold on to? Cause we've done that forever. And that's at the heart of our community, not because we've done it forever and it wasn't <laughs> useful.
0: Absolutely. I love that framework. And I hope that our listeners are able to really apply that to, to their work this spring as they plan for next school year. And then as you said, we, we, this is an opportunity. This is a time where we don't have to do the things that didn't work anymore. That's right. I can really redefine so many practices. And um, thank you so much for today. You really gave us so much to think about. And, you know, thinking about that ways in which, you know, we can really foster literacy and our literacy instruction can promote agency, equity, and understanding. So thank you.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you for joining us today. I hope our time together bolstered your agency and understanding. I would like to thank our sponsor. Pinnacle Assurance is Colorado's leading workers' compensation provider. For over 100 years, they've been at the forefront of protecting, understanding, and caring for workers and local businesses with trusted coverage and expert safety resources and services. The ways we work will undoubtedly evolve, but the need for worker protection always remains the same. In closing, PEBC is headquartered in Denver, Colorado and works both locally and nationally to cultivate agency, equity, and understanding as described in Wendy Wardhoffer's newest book, Phenomenal Teaching. PEBC provides customized on-site professional development and coaching for schools and districts, facilitates a variety of institutes and seminars, and offers an array of online learning experiences for all educators. We also prepare new teachers via the PEBC Teacher Residency Program. Check us out at PEBC.org. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram.